0: or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you gotta do is head on over to u-turnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. Hey, everybody, it's Ash here, and I have such an exciting episode for you today. We are going to take the first leap in this episode to talk about social issues and political issues with the goal on the U-Turn podcast of educating you on topics that feel otherwise overwhelming. So I'm taking a step into my old world of counterterrorism, the Pentagon, and all of the different things I did early in my career by bringing Bob Doherty on. He's a native Californian. He grew up in LA just like I did. He spent 26 years in the CIA, 23 years in the field, and he served everywhere in counterterrorism. And he's retired, but he still now helps the government with special operations. And I figured we could talk about Islamic extremism and different security threats that exist right now and educate you on what you can actually be concerned about or what's not actually a threat. So this is going to be a really rich episode. And before I go further, Bob, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks, Ashley, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, it's so much fun. It feels kind of interesting to have left the counterterrorism world and to be taking this step back towards it and have somebody in my personal development universe on this podcast talking about something I left behind. Um, Thank you so much for doing this with me.
1: No, uh, we've known each other for a while now, so it's great to reconnect with you and uh, share some of our old stories from your old, old past in the past.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to remember where I met you. I think it might have been at an FBI training or something yes. um, where you're presenting. But yeah, I remember thinking, wow, this man has a lot of experience and you have to be very emotionally resilient to have done a lot of the things you've done. So. I'm curious for everybody listening before we even dive in if you can share a little bit about what your world was in the CIA, whatever you can share to help people understand the nature of the work you've done and the nature of the person it takes to do that kind of work.
1: Yeah absolutely and and the CIA is like is like every organization part of the government is comprised of humans right men and women who are out there doing a job and doing a mission so in that aspect it's no different than private sector or a corporation or a company or a self-start business run by an entrepreneur our mission really was to keep United States safe from threats, whether they were terrorism or proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or Russian or Chinese threats. And we did that. What I did in the director of operations was doing that. By developing personal relationships with people overseas, humans, who would then serve as sources of intelligence for us on what was going on overseas. So as you can imagine, it's a very personal, intimate relationship that you're developing with someone, convincing them that, hey, I want you to tell me stuff that your government probably doesn't want you to tell me or your group doesn't want you to tell me, but I'm doing it for the greater good of not only you and your country but for the world as well. And so that's basically what our day-to-day life was, is developing relationships with people like that, managing them, and then talking to them and asking them the right questions Mm -hmm. that would generate intelligence that we would write up and send to policymakers in Washington. Of course, we had to do that in very dangerous areas, so the person that does that type of job. The men and women that did that type of job were very much self-starters. They were very disciplined, very, very sharp intellectually, but they also had a high degree of common sense and street smarts and were able to adapt to very changing situations. Again, all skill sets that I would say are very applicable in the private sector as well.
0: When it comes to you having these sorts of conversations where essentially somebody's turning against their state, right? You're talking to them about. Um, offering information that might be counter to their government. I'm curious what, I mean, you're taking a huge risk. So how do you gauge somebody um, as someone that would be available to hearing your insight without you risking your life?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. And, And again, you'll laugh when I say the answer. It's kind of like, you know getting a date with someone you want to go out with or convincing your spouse to marry you eventually or, or getting that big job or that next promotion right it's all based on your personal relationship with that person and getting to a point where you assess their motivations you assess what makes them tick what they're passionate about you assess their likes and dislikes Okay, And then you use that, not in a manipulative way, but you try to fulfill the needs that they have. And by doing so, you get them to uh, agree to cooperate with you for the greater good. And look, a lot of these people that work with us, all of them volunteered, we don't force anybody to do anything coercion and blackmail are absolutely not used they did it because they thought it was in their best interest as well either we were helping them with money helping them with education for their kids helping them with medicine for a sick relative uh, giving them a better chance in life somewhere Uh, they all believed that they were doing the right thing in their minds and helping their own country or helping their own group so again it was very much of a dance but it was nothing out of the ordinary of what we do in everyday life which which is established relationships Relationships, uh, develop those personal ties and then use your interpersonal skills to achieve what your objectives are.
0: Well, and, and Bob, I know um, when I first met you, I remember you were very well spoken and very approachable. And I think that's a, a soft skill that not everybody has. Maybe they can develop. But what do you think it takes in a person, you know, outside of the sp- street smarts and stuff like that, but as a person to be someone with the charisma and the connectivity and the um, inspiration for somebody to want to share with you. What do you think um, that takes for somebody listening right now who wants to just develop that skill in their life? Maybe they don't want to join the CIA, but they want to be more charismatic or approachable for people to talk to.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Ashley, and I'm glad you asked me that because mm-hmm. it, it is a skill set that translates across all sectors, all nationalities. And actually, you know, we all get tested. I'm sure you did when you went to the job in the Pentagon. Pentagon on the Myers-Briggs scale. And actually, the first thing is whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, right? And and I tested out as an introvert, and I am an introvert. So you don't have to be that back-slapping, life-of-the-party type of person to be approachable. And I would say a couple things. One, you always be genuine and honest. If you're fake or phony, people across all cultures, quickly, quickly get that and get that feeling, okay? So you have to be yourself. You can't play somebody's self or play a role that you think your boss or your coworker or your colleague wants you to play. you got to be yourself and be genuine and be true to yourself. The second thing, which I think is a huge thing that not a lot of young people do, not a lot of old people do, is listen. I find a lot of young people in my profession and in the private sector, they're always on what I call the transmit mode. They're always talking. You can learn so much by listening to people around you about them, about what makes them tick. And in a business setting or a corporate setting, that's invaluable. And then observation. Look at the people around you and why are they doing what they're doing? You can make assessments on a person without even talking to them. Look at their body language. Take some classes in that. I know you offer coaching classes and and, uh, some of your online training, which I think is invaluable. You can, you know, uh, 60% of our communication between people, as you know, actually, is nonverbal. It's all about body language. So if you can learn some of that stuff, you can really start to observe the people around you and make yourself more approachable, more amenable, make yourself more charismatic to them by simply listening, observing, and being genuine you're going to attract people to you you want to talk to you, whether that's about your next job or your promotion or making a deal a business deal or whether that's about asking someone to spy for you it's all the same skill set
0: mm, and i know that you know going back into your counterterrorism roots i'm sure there were times where you went out on a ledge and we're converting somebody into a source. You know, you were having that conversation where you were revealing yourself and I mean, because obviously that's like a grand reveal, letting them know that you're helping the other side. So I'm curious when you take that risk, um, what do you think is the key ingredient to being able to share an opinion and be met without risking your life?
1: I think it's based on the rapport that you have with that person and we constantly stress that and again that's the, that's the relationship right the deeper rapport you have with that person chemistry and this is yeah chemistry absolutely mm. you got to have that chemistry and kind of know that person which is the assessment part to kind of know beforehand before you even ask the question you probably should know the answer-hmm and if you don't, then you are taking a big risk. Okay. But in every instance that I was in, I knew the answer way ahead of time, 100 percent of the time, what the person was going to say. And so when I actually asked the question, it was not a surprise to me. I had planned for that.
0: Wonderful. OK. And, you know, it's so interesting that you've been at this, you know, 26 years in the CIA. That means that you were around during nine eleven, um, capturing Osama bin Laden and also the Arab Spring. So. I'm curious if, and I don't know if this is a huge ask of you, Bob, but if you could explain to everybody what the hell happened for the Arab Spring, because I think a lot of people in my generation saw the news and didn't really understand what it was and how it leaked into the Middle East and potentially what is happening right now because of it.
1: Yeah, so that's a real complex question. I try to kind of break it down in the way I see it in an easy to -to 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 lead to digestible version right so you know if we look at the if we look at the middle east and this is not a pejorative it's a statement of fact okay we have to understand that a lot of the problems of the middle east including extremism and terrorism spring from socio-economic factors and those socio-economic factors are for the for the 40 plus nations of the mainly muslim middle east You know, all economic indicators and socioeconomic indicators, the rates books are published, GDP, production have all gone down in the last quarter of a century rather than up as the rest most of the rest of the world. Therefore we have these situations where there's not enough employment. There's not enough higher educational opportunities for young people. The governments are repressive and somewhat tyrannical against their people. You have, you know, secret police in a lot of these countries. There's no effective rule of law. That's been going on for a long, long time in the Middle East. And then all of a sudden, this kind of spark with the overthrow of Mubarak, President Mubarak in Egypt, kind of set this spark in some of these localized disputes, kind of grew on their own, a little bit of help virally from the social media, and people in in collective kind of said, We've had enough. We want better governance. We want a better way of life. We want better educational opportunities for our kids, better opportunities for jobs. And, and it kind of was almost like you saw in Eastern Europe, like in Romania or some of the former Soviet bloc countries. After a long, many decades of bad life, people finally said, I've had enough and we're going to change this. And that in essence... It's what happened with the Arab Spring in a very simplified version.
0: And, you know, I was at a dinner party and I'm so sad. I can't remember the guy's name, but he had some sort of TV show in the Middle East that played a role on YouTube on the Arab Spring. And I'm curious, you know, I know social media and Facebook and all of that played a huge role. Um, what can you share for people to really understand the power of social media when it comes to these movements that change national security and the world?
1: Well, they're hugely powerful now. And in fact, you know, without getting into classified stuff, as you know, both DOD and CIA put a lot of emphasis on using social media to achieve our objectives in the world. Right. Yeah. So that that in and of itself tells you that they have tremendous impact. I mean, let's be honest about it. If we go back to the disintegration of Yugoslavia and the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic, that all happened, Ashley, exclusively through social media. That the Yugoslav people and the opposition groups, the various opposition groups, united, organized, and directed their activities through social media contact and pretty peacefully, there was some bloodshed, overthrew a dictator in their view. That all happened via social media in the, in the modern world. So it's an extremely powerful force. Obviously, groups like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda use it to their advantage as well uh, to help radicalize people and recruit people. So not only is it a force for good, but it can be a force for for evil as well in the wrong hands.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, I would love to get your snapshot right now for everybody listening about what is a threat now and in the future, like what's trending? Because I remember back when I was in national security There were some really interesting trends when it came to Islamic extremism. Um, For example, you know, crop dusting and how that was a security threat. Um, You know, worrying about terrorists using crop dusting planes to use chemicals and destruction. So I'm curious, what insights can you share for everybody to really grasp what's going on now? And what do we need to be concerned about in the future when it comes to actual security threats?
1: Yeah, so let, let me just give you a, an overview of kind of think where I stand, and, and it's a little counterintuitive in, counter to what most people's perceptions are, but I think that's the goal of your program here today. So if you look at terrorism as a threat, let's say, to Americans, statistically it is not, mm-hmm. okay? Since 9/11, since 9-11, an average of 7 to 12 Americans per year has been killed By acts of terrorism. (laughs) You know, there's about 100 people that die every day in this country from vehicle accidents. We have about 14,000 homicides a year in this country. So statistically, terrorism is absolutely not a threat at all. Yet, in most polls that have been done recently, other than the economy, the second thing that Americans worry about is terrorism. So the reality of the situation is not reflected by the actual perception of most Americans, okay? So that's one of the reasons we have to pay attention to it is because American people are worried about it even though it's not much of a threat. And again, I can't overemphasize this that much. Why are we spending all this money and all this time on counterterrorism? It's not because it's a threat to actually kill Americans. It's because of the potential for it in the future. Mm. If somebody gets a hold, like you notice, of a biological weapon, they're already using chemical weapons in the Middle East, like sarin and chlorine gas. They have the capacity to kill large amounts of people. So we're worried about that one-off event or the next 9-11. That's what we're doing. We're we're trying to prevent that from happening rather than contain a threat that's already there. The threat really isn't there in existence for us now. Mm -hmm. And what what do we see that's happening now? The terrorists are going back old school. We're going to use a vehicle or we're going to use a knife to attack people it's not really a significant threat to us is it Mm. but yet that's splashed across the headlines and splashed splashed across social media so it has a much bigger impact on our perception than it actually is so in essence the bottom line is terrorism is not a national security threat to the united states of america
0: you know i remember when i met you the number one national security threat in my awareness in my training was white neo-nazis white supremacists so I'm curious, is that still the case in the United States? What are the security threats to people's safety that you can share that might be kind of surprising for people listening
1: yeah i mean look that domestic what we call the domestic threat right neo-nazi groups white hate groups uh, militia groups that's always been there yeah Uh, maybe maybe that's gone up a little bit more in terms of membership but that's always been a certain percentage of the population right and i don't think that's really changed that much and other than timothy mcveigh in oklahoma city we, we really haven't had a significant attack in years and years right um you know, look, Americans get radicalized online. That's always been a threat. But again, those cases in terms of the overall crime in this country are not significant. Yeah, we spend a lot of time trying to work against those cases. And I get it. I think you want to fight against all forms of extremism. What I really worried about, what I really worry about, is the one-off event. In other words, a really smart terrorist group or extremist group being able to inf- influence our infrastructure, either through cyber hacking, through offensive computer operations and you know, shut down a power plant, take an electrical grid offline for days and weeks, somehow insert themselves in our food production or our crop production in a nefarious way, our water supply. Those are type of the new things that I worry about in a technologically savvy world that used to be limited to states or countries, as you know, to be able to do those things. Now, because of the advance of technology, you know small groups or individuals can now have a big impact on our digital network and our in our infrastructure and that's what kind of worries me about the future although again i don't see that as a huge threat right now compared to all the other things that are going on in the world
0: well and i would love to get into the use of guns and I know this is really controversial, a lot of people talking about gun rights, and I know that there's some blurriness around who can register for a gun, and there's some risks um, associated, so is it possible you could share with us what kind of person is able to get a gun? What are the guidelines for the people that cannot? And what do you think the risks are for that? Because I know, you know, of course, everybody hears, you know, the news calling the crazy gunman a lone wolf. And then there's like a level of racism when it's terrorism. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And if you could educate everyone on gun rights and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so look, I don't know all the, I'll be honest with you, I don't know all the exact details of the law. I know if you're a convicted felon in this country, you can't own a firearm. But just let me make a broader statement to to take this in context. We can make all the laws we want restricting the size of magazines, restricting automatic weapons, restricting how many guns you have. There's a two-week waiting period now if you buy a handgun and they do a name check on you, okay? That's great. I'm all for those things. However, if a criminal or a terrorist wants to get a weapon bad enough, there are unfortunately plenty of weapons for them to get. Those type of laws are only going to apply to citizens who obey the laws of the country. It's not going to make an impact on terrorists a terrorist getting a weapon or a criminal getting a weapon. That's why I kind of, I kind of laugh at all these rules and regulations. We, we always do a knee-jerk reaction after the latest school shooting, and we try to impl- – that's not going to solve that problem, okay? Mm. Um, I don't know how we're going to solve the problem because we have a ton of guns in this country, and they're easily accessible. And the Second Amendment assures us that right of that. Now, I would say this. This is where I'm very pragmatic. I'm very conservative in most views. The Second Amendment says you have the right to bear arms. I don't think anyone in this country, including myself or you who have had training, should own a fully automatic weapon. I really don't. That was not the that was not the vision of our, our founding fathers. However, if I would like to own a rifle or a shotgun or even a pistol, I feel I should have that right to own it. After you do background checks or whatever you're going to do. But I don't think anybody except the police and the military should have fully automatic weapons as a private citizen of this country. On the other side of the equation, people say, well, the government's going to come take our guns. And, and I always ask this question because I always like playing things out. OK, who in the government is going to come take your guns? Well, you know, maybe we get a real liberal president, a real liberal Congress, and they enact a law. Okay, fine. They enact that law. They're going to ban all weapons in this country. First of all, I don't think that would ever happen, ever, uh, because it would be against the Constitution of the United States, right? So who's going to come get those guns? The FBI, the CIA, your local police? Well, we're all people like you and I, Ashley, who have sworn, if you're a federal officer or police officer, you have sworn to uphold the Constitution. And embedded in that Constitution is your right as an individual to refuse an order from any authority that you believe is unconstitutional. So who's going to come get all the guns if a law is made? Hmm. Nobody's going to come get all the guns. Sure, there's going to be a few you know, diehards that are going to take any order they get. But what's embedded in our system of government is a system of checks and balances to prevent excesses like that one way or the other. So on the gun thing, Yes, if you want to have a gun and you're going to use it for private use, great. Nobody should have a fully automatic weapon except the police and the military, in my view. And making all these laws is not going to stop terrorists and criminals from getting weapons if they want to.
0: Yeah, I mean, there have been a couple institu- uh, situations recently in my life. Number one, I mentor a 15-year-old kid, and the captain of his football team at his high school in Culver City brought a gun to school and was planning to, you know, shoot everyone. And apparently somebody on the football team ratted him out and school was out, you know, canceled for a few days. So I have felt the visceral experience of having somebody very close to me who's scared to go to school and I think that the news has played a role in in the fear, and then also just reality is that it it is easy to get a gun in today's society. I went to Big Five to get a sleeping bag, because I was going to Burning Man, the annual event, and and it was like next to the sleeping bags was a huge gun selection, and for me to realize that I could so easily get one, uh, it was an interesting feeling for me, Um, so that's the first thing, and then secondly, I was at a nightclub the other night, and um, there's some sort of fight that broke out downtown LA, and some guy, I think was gang related pulled a gun and i felt so scared i left and and having worked in counterterrorism i've been around plenty of guns um i didn't feel afraid because his energy wasn't indiscriminate like he felt like he had a tiff with one person but i wanted to get the hell out of there and so um i think that Where do you think the future is headed when it comes to gun control, Um, regardless of your own opinion of whether we should have it or not? What are your thoughts on, you know, the social conversation and the pressure to go one direction or not? And is it even realistic if the next wave votes for more gun control to even get guns off the street? Is that even a realistic goal?
1: No, it's not a realistic goal, so let's just be honest. First of all, it's, it's embedded in the Constitution, the Second Amendment, as you know, that takes like 73 quarters of the states and a state legislature, three-quarter vote of Congress to overturn a, a, an amendment. That's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, it hasn't happened on other more uh, prominent issues, I would say, or worthwhile issues. And, and, and gun control, again, it, you can restrict and you can do all these things. It doesn't make a difference to somebody who wants to go conduct a shooting at a school or workplace violence or conduct a terrorist act. They will either buy enough weapons legally and use them, look at the guy in Nevada, or they will simply acquire illegal weapons on the black market like they acquire fake IDs or cars or other things that they need. So for us to think that we're going to control what are acts of people, conscious acts of people, by restricting the equipment that they use is kind of short-sighted on our part. What we really need to work on is recognizing this instability in people, what causes them to go out and do violent things or conduct crimes and try to help that aspect of it, the human nature. And then I would also note that in every single instance, 100% of school shootings in this country Hundred percent of workplace violence incidents, a hundred percent of terrorist acts. There are always pre-incident indicators, yes. behaviors and actions that happen before that no one either that people notice and don't know what they mean, or that people don't observe. But they're always there. Ashley, if you look at the the Parkland, Florida school shooter, right there were so many pre-incident indicators for two years before that shooting that people should have picked up on, which would allow them to intervene with that individual before the actual violence took place. And that's what we miss as a society. It's part of the training that I do, and I know kind of you do too, as well, is making people more aware of the environment around them and noticing things, and then saying, hey, why is it, why is that person doing that or this? That's a little unusual. I need to dig in further. I need to tell somebody about that. We miss that as a society a lot, Ashley.
0: Mm, and I think a lot of people are afraid of wasting resources. Like they see something weird and they're like, I don't want to call like 911. Who do I call? So I would love to learn Um, I don't know how we can generalize this, Bob, because I know between you and I, it's like there's so many different types of scenarios that that you need to worry about with, you know, is somebody going to threaten to use a gun? Is somebody some sort of risk in their family? So what are some general indicators, for lack of a better term, that somebody can see for someone that's about to lose their shit, you know, and do something completely off? Um, For example, the Florida shooter. What are some things that people can look out for conversationally um, that are indicators
1: Yeah, so let me give you a couple that are conversational and a couple that are other. First of all, you mentioned the social media before. That's a big one. He was all over, Nicholas Cruz, the Florida shooter, was all over his social media, Facebook, Instagram, and I believe also Twitter, but definitely Facebook and Instagram, talking about going to a school and shooting it up multiple times, months before he actually did it. So it was out there in the public. Every American that's been radicalized in this country actually by Al Qaeda, the Islamic State, if you look at their social media, they're right out there in the open. They've got the ISIS flag. They're quoting guys like Anwar al-Awlaki. They're spouting this extremist rhetoric right in publicly available information for anybody to look at. So it's right out there in the open. Some of the other thing, and then conversation, if you were in a personal conversation with them, they would be saying the same things. These people are not hiding their intentions and their beliefs. They're not camouflaging them. They're very open about them. Again, people either ignore them or brush them off, or don't understand what they mean. And in a lot of cases, and here's the key thing, Ashley, 100% of school shooters in this country have told a third party about what they're gonna do before they do it. Um, now, who is that third party? It's either friends or family, right? Mm-hmm. Like me telling you, I'm gonna go to the school tomorrow, I I'm gonna shoot it up. The problem is, because that third party is usually friends or family, they're reluctant to report their friend or family member to authorities until it's too late. How do we overcome that stigma? I don't have a great answer for that, but that is a phenomena that happens almost every single time. Somebody else knows about the plans and
0: intentions and they fail to report it and call it in. You know, what you're also making me think a lot about is I I travel a lot. I'm on a couple airplanes every month. And what I'm finding is that one of the rules that I learned, and I'm sure you know all of this all too well, is that the worst type of national security plan is a predictable one. And I know having gone through TSA, Every time I'm at the airport, I'm like, this is the most predictable plan of all the plans. Like, It's very clear and out there how we're doing security, at least visibly. Maybe there's something else going on in the airport a lot of people don't know. So I'm curious, what is your take right now on how we're approaching security when it comes to travel and our safety?
1: Look, I, I think it's pretty good, right? It's a deterrent. These guys, the bad guys, the real bad guys, right? We're talking about terrorist groups now, not regular criminals are always trying to find a way to use our transportation systems against us. It's one of their prime targets, right? They want to attack us at an airport, at a train station. They want to attack trains. They want to attack planes. And again, that's born out of they looked at 9-11, and they said, look at this spectacular attack we did with planes. So they kept focusing on trying to get back into the planes or use the plane as a weapon. We've been pretty good about keeping them out of that with the, the security screening of luggage and, you know, only taking, uh, you know, 2.5 ounces aboard board and hardening cockpit doors. That's been very effective in my view and probably one of the least expensive things and the billions of dollars that we spend on counterterrorism that's actually worked and given us great bang for our buck, right? Um, so I think the transportation, you know, safety and security is good, what I would say is is what I was just talking about, what our security personnel and the average citizen needs more awareness of is that what I call advanced situational awareness. of Just that skill that's in, inside all of us of looking at the environment around you and looking at a person that you're looking at or conversing with and then noticing any anomalies in their behavior from from the baseline that you've established, and then asking yourself that question, why am I seeing those anomalies? What might they mean? Mm-hmm. That's the extra couple steps that we lack, as most private citizens lack. They'll see something strange. They'll be like, oh, that's strange. I wonder why that guy's doing that. I wonder why that guy's taking a picture of that federal building. And they'll just move on. Yeah. And they'll want to ask, what, what, why, what, what could that mean? Why could he be doing that? You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? <laughs> So I, I do a lot of training like that for both the private sector and law enforcement and military. It's taking that extra step and, and making all of us more aware of our surroundings around us. And by the way, that's also a positive skill, right? You're going into a business meeting or or a corporate boardroom. If you're very good at situational awareness, you're reading the people around you. Again, not just their words, but their body language. How they're interacting with each other tells you a lot about their relationships with each other. You can draw a lot of information like from those. Those observational skills, the situational awareness skills, that's going to help you do your job better, pitch your product better, fit in as part of the corporate team. Whatever it is your objective is, those skills are invaluable. So they not only apply to the counterterrorism security sector, they also apply to the private sector as well.
0: Mm, There's a couple of things that you just had rang inside of me. Number one is our security system. So the other day I flew to Las Vegas and my friend Jason bought everybody their plane tickets. And because he was pre-check, all of the tickets were deemed as pre-check. But I have not qualified to be pre-check. I haven't done anything to get that status, but they treated me as pre-check because any ticket he bought was tagged as pre-check. So I'm curious. Like I was like, is that a flaw in the system? You know what I mean? There's, there's little things like that where I get really curious. Um, how... What is your thoughts on measures like that, pre check and stuff like that, as far as their actual actual ability to be sustainable and support people with safety?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I I think we've got to be careful about publicly putting out flaws like that for people to explain. But you and I know there's so many flaws in the system. Let's be honest. What what we hope is we serve as a deterrent. Okay, and you asked me about what my, what my greatest fear is. My greatest fear, actually is someone like you or i turning bad or someone with that level of experience and smarts they could cause a lot of problems couldn't they yeah right with with our knowledge an insider threat um with 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 skills to match um you know so that's my bit. You get a smart terrorist out there who knows our system, who's lived in this country, maybe as an American, and they really want to do something bad. And they're smart and capable. We we might have a serious problem on our hand. You and I know that. Yep. So so far we've been able to avoid that. Um, so the other the other thing is a psychological effect, uh, Ashley. And I've talked to you know either trying to recruit a sources or interviewing these type of guys. Uh, enough of these extremists overseas. They believe that we are omniscient and um, omnipotent. They believe that one, when they are in our country, we are tracking their every move and listening to their every conversation. So you and I know that's not the reality, but if we can keep that, 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 that perception in their minds, they act paranoid, it serves as a deterrent force, even though you and I know that behind the scenes, there's flaws in a lot of those security systems.
0: Well, and, you know, kind of going back on people noticing when something is up, because although, you know, Islamic extremism, for example, is a low security threat, there's so many different weird things that the government is monitoring. And if there's anything that I got when I left the government, it was an awareness of how much they're preventing that doesn't come on the social radar. And what heroes we have um, taking different measures. And so I'm curious, you know, To just share with everybody, one thing that I learned in personal development is that our brains are wired for congruence. And so a lot of the times what sets us off is when we see something incongruent. And that can uh, relate to what you're talking about, right, Bob? But it can also be, like, for example, for the ladies listening, maybe there's a beautiful man at the bar, but you don't go up to him, even though you typically would. And the reason you're not going up to him is because something's off. You're picking up on some incongruence um, in his behavior, the way he's talking to people. Um, So I'm curious, like, Is there anything you can elaborate on, Bob, um, in identifying incongruence? And also, where do people go when they actually have the consciousness to think, okay, there's something really off with that person and I want to report it? Because I think also security sometimes doesn't take things seriously.
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, You know, again, one of the classes that I love giving is this advanced situational awareness. And we talk about Uh, the brain chemistry, and it's fascinating to me. So since you asked me the question... Do tell. (laughs) Yeah. So what you're talking about and what I talk about is called your gut instinct, the hair on the back of your neck, your spidey sense, uh, whatever you want to call it, your sixth sense, that is actually based in in brain chemistry. And that is your amygdala, which is a little organ at the base of your brain and your spine that basically its only job is to monitor the physical environment around you 24-7. It does it even when you're sleeping. And it monitors the environment through your, your senses, sight, uh, sight touch, uh, taste, and smell, right? And hearing. So the amygdala's only job is to keep your human body safe. So when the amygdala senses something in the environment that's incongruent, like you said, something that has changed it signals you and that's what gives you that feeling in the pit of your stomach that gut instinct the hair on your on your on your arms standing up we need to trust those instincts because there's there's DNA behind it. There's brain chemistry behind it. And when you get those feelings, look around. What has changed? Is there a threat? Is there a danger? That's why I'm not going to talk to that guy in the bar. My amygdala is signal- signaling me something's wrong here. Now, it's not that he's a serial killer or he's going to do you harm, but your amygdala is telling you something's off. You need to trust those instincts, both females and males. Take a close look in the environment around you. See if you see anything that's an immediate threat or just get out of that situation. Like you said, with the nightclub, I mean, you saw the threat, right? Yep. But your amygdala was also signaling you. Let me tell you a story about a quick story, if I can, a war story yeah. of this, of this working. And I know everyone has had a similar experience. This is Years ago, 25 years ago, I was in Lima, Peru as a young CIA case officer. We had two major terrorist groups down there that were bombing us and and targeting us all the time. I remember walking out of a, a USAID building, an official U.S. government building, in the middle of the day, it was like a Wednesday at noon, in the middle of Lima, which is this huge city, tons of people, right? So it's like being in the middle of New York City. Tons of people, cars around, tons of sounds around. We're walking out of the building, and I remember saying, my God, it is absolutely quiet right now. I could not hear a sound. Wow, that's really weird. I could see all the people walking around me and all the cars going past me. As I walked in my car, I got in, and I said, God, that's really strange. It's really quiet right now. As soon as I got into my car, a massive car bomb went off across the street by one of the terrorist groups against the U.S. ambassador's residence. Blew, blew through the U.S. ambassador's residence. Unfortunately, killed a couple of people. That was my amygdala signaling to me. Not that there was a car bomb out there specifically that but something has changed in the environment bob you need to be aware you need to do something right now
0: Mm. and
1: that's the way it works so in terms of how how that works in personal development absolutely you need to trust your gut instincts uh whatever you want to call it because there's brain chemistry behind it that makes that work
0: and i also remember and i wonder if there's some statistics you can share but at the time that i was being trained i was um taught that one out of three calls to the U.S. bomb squad are accurate, meaning that there's something in a bag. So I'm curious, what are some realistic statistics for people to understand what kind of security threats or issues happen every day in the United States?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, look, you know, and the more you observe, we always look for, look, we're looking for clusters of pre-incident indicators, maybe not just one or two, but three or four. Hey, this person, uh, you know, the person at work who's always upbeat and happy for the last two weeks it's had been depressed and sullen uh they're not grooming themselves well anymore um they're uh, i noticed on their social media page they used to be talking about their travel now they're talking about firing weapons at a at a firing range all these are indicators of a change in behavior in someone beyond the baseline of what's out there you're talking about the 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 thing the thing in the bag that's the end result of it right all the pre-incident indicators leading up to that person putting a bomb in a bag Bag are all the things that we miss those behaviors and actions so that's what i'd really like people to focus on is take more stock in the environment around you you know that you know what is normal around your house or your apartment or your kid's school or your workplace you know what's normal about the airports you travel through look for the things that are abnormal the next time and then ask yourself why is this happening it's not always a bad reason but it gets you in the practice of noticing the environment around you and being aware. And again, that will also work in a boardroom or a corporate setting. You don't have to be out on the street. What is different about how these two colleagues are interacting? Mm-hmm. What can I tell from their body language or their verbal interactions with each other? That's all giving you information. In terms of threats, uh, go back. One of the easy—if you think there's a serious threat out there in terms of terrorism or crime. Besides calling 911, right, uh, we have a fusion center. There's 56-plus 50, fusion centers in the U.S. They're staffed by the FBI, CIAs, and some of them, local law enforcement. Our, what, we have four in California. We have one in Los Angeles and Norwalk. It's called the Joint Regional Intelligence Center JRIC. If you go to www.jric.org, It'll bring up their website and right on the first page is a submit a tip or lead button. All you got to do is is hit on that, whether you're a private citizen, whether you're law enforcement, it doesn't matter. And a field will open up where you can fill in, hey, this is what I saw. This is where I saw it. It's, It's anonymous if you want it to be. This is why I think it's suspicious. That will absolutely get looked at by an FBI threat squad who will run that to ground. So that to me is the easiest way if you think there's a serious threat out there whether it's workplace violence, active school shooting or terrorism go to www.jrick.org and submit a tip or lead on their on their front webpage there.
0: Mm, and that means so helpful I think to give people a resource and kind of on that note, I think the way that shock works like for example, I was in Turkey during the protest in 2012 Um, you know, where in the middle of Taksim Square, people are doing tear gas and wearing screen masks, and it was quite an environment. And also, I was in Israel in 2014, where um, a lot of, uh, you know, as far as like the Israeli missile defense system was, it's totally activated. It was a really tense time of unrest and um Gaza had shot at Israel, and it was coming down where I was walking in Jerusalem. And so I'm curious to ask you, at that moment, I remember going into a bomb shelter, um, waiting to see if it would hit the ground or if we would be saved by the defense system. But I do remember just being in that time that, you know, a lot of people were in shock and it was so interesting to me in the bomb shelter that these women who were tourists were like let's take pictures and selfies of ourselves down here so i think a lot of people don't let the shock of certain situations hit them and land so and i think that the, your your human brain it kind of protects you from fully processing something because it's it's a lot to take in or it's traumatic so i'm curious how can we allow things to land you know when there is actually a threat because You know, even for me at the nightclub, a lot of people weren't letting it land that there was a gun out. People were acting like that wasn't happening. So I think a lot of the times because it feels so out of the ordinary or weird or scary, people pretend or their brain doesn't allow them to process that something is a threat, that they need to take a move. And as a result, people have weird behaviors when they're in shock. So what can we do if we are in some sort of shock to get back into our senses and respond to an actual situation?
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. Look, only experience really can can help you with that. But I would say this one thing. And this is not about being paranoid or constantly thinking the worst is going to happen. I really want to emphasize this. But this is a simple thing that I do. And it takes two seconds. If you're in any situation, whether you're in your office, your school, you're going to see a play, you're going to a nightclub, you're traveling on a plane. And and you're, you're entering a new situation, okay, a new office, whatever, new floor of your office, I always say, hey, if something bad happens, whatever that is, earthquake, fire, guy walks into this room with a gun, what am I going to do? I'm going to go that way. That's all I do. It's a simple two-second memory ex- or exercise in my mind. If something bad happens, if an earthquake hits, if a fire alarm goes off, if a guy walks into this room with a gun, what am I going to do? By just thinking that out, we've shown testing time and time again, when and if that bad thing happens, you're going to react because you've already thought about what you're going to do. If you don't do that and the bad thing happens, you're going to freeze in place, like we said, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's one of the basic human responses, right? Freeze, fight or flight, right? You're going to freeze first. So just going into the movie theater, whatever situation, going into a restaurant for lunch, if something bad happens... What am I going to do? I'm going to go to my right and go out that exit there. Or I'm going to go through the back door. Or I'm going to hide under this table. Whatever it is, at least have a plan. That way you can rest assured that if that thing does happen, which statistically it's not going to, right, that you will react instantaneously. And that's the best way to do it. And it only takes two seconds every time you enter a new physical situation.
0: Mm, So helpful, I think, just to, you know, I think I do that on autopilot, but that's just from having come from the national security space that when I go to the movies I'm like where's the exits and it's it's not because I think a lot of people are hearing this they might think do I really have to live thinking this way to me it's really relaxed it's all about your energy to me I just I'm always like where's the exit where would I go if there's an issue and that's it I move on and so I think that's great feedback because we freeze when we don't we haven't thought about it in advance and the, the situation is so stressful that you don't have time to think about it um so I totally get that. And actually, when the gun came out at the nightclub the other night, I just knew exactly where I was going to go. And my other friends were like completely frozen. And I was like, follow me. So I totally get that. Um, I want to ask you just for a quick second about how the world sees us and what actual issues are coming in the future. So I'm curious, how, what is your sense of how the rest of the world sees the United States politically right now?
1: So I I say, look, I've spent a lot of time overseas. So look, most of the time, you know, the the rest of the world sees us as this big, arrogant, loudmouth kind of brash, brash culture or country. Uh, Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And, and I think a lot of that is due to you know, the movies and the TV that we put out, and the fact that we as Americans, no matter where we come from, right, because we're all immigrants basically, except the Native Americans that were here, we, we've developed this attitude. And the American attitude to me is really an independent, open minded, kind of friendly attitude. And, and, and those are all good traits, but sometimes those don't translate well culturally when you're talking to other cultures. So I, I think. You know, we're viewed somewhat negatively in a lot of areas of the world, but the people who know the good that we do in the world like our country. And there's a there's a dichotomy, as you well know. Lots of people may hate the American government or may not like the American government for what we do overseas or the perception of what we do overseas. <laughs> Yet, as individual Americans, we're very likable. I, I love this story in Iran where, uh, you know, you see this scene of 10,000 Iranians protesting death to America, holding the signs. And, you know, an American reporter will go up and say to a guy that's holding the sign death to America, you know, why do you feel that way? And the Iranian will say, oh, are you an American? Can you help me get a visa?
0: Uh-huh. And, and, that,
1: and right, that's, that's the essence of it right there. Individually, we don't have a problem with each other individually, we don't have a problem with most Russians or Chinese, Iranians, nor do they have a problem with us. It's when we bring the governments in, right, that the governments have problems with each other, and I get that. But to me, and you travel a lot, I always try to be an ambassador of my country, wherever I am low-key, respectful of the country and the culture and the customs that I'm in, not trying to be the loud, ugly American. And if all of us can do that when we're outside this country, each one of us will send a ripple effect that will hopefully improve the image of our country. But again, it's not based on us as Americans. Most people around the world like Americans one-on-one. They don't necessarily agree with everything our government does, and that's where the problem lies. Mm -hmm,
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, I spend part of the year living in France and I have found that it's a lot more tense there and the security threat there feels a lot more real and I know that they don't have privacy measures like we do like for example the French public won't approve videos in the uh, video cameras in the streets due to privacy so I'm curious you know as it relates to privacy here do you have any concerns and also as it relates to security around the world what do you think we should start being aware of and learning about right now
1: yeah, so uh, that's a great question on how, you know, we're a liberal democratic society, a republic, how, how intrusive should we the people, because we are the government, we always forget that fact, how intrusive do we want our government security services to be, FBI, CIA, you know, police? And to me, my personal opinion is, and, and I was one of them, right, I don't want them to be, have the tools to be super intrusive. I want them to have the tools, you know, the, within a checks and balances system that, you know, they can listen to phones and, and, and retrieve emails with a court order that multiple people have looked at and authorized and said, yeah, there's, there's a level of justification, a level of evidence for that. But, I, you know, I don't want to give our government uh, too much power. And our founding fathers didn't want that either. Look, we've seen what, to me, is maybe a huge abuse of government power by uh, by the past administration and administrations before that, and maybe even this administration, by using intelligence methods basically just spy on political opponents or gain advantage. Mm. That is so not our system. Mm -hmm. And it really pisses me off personally because I was a part of that system that anyone would be arrogant and and foolish enough to attempt that, but it looks like it's been done to me. So I don't think we want to give our government broad powers to be intrusive. I think we want to give them very select powers to be intrusive on the very bad people, the very few bad people that are here, but that those powers be checked and bound and always you know reviewed by by other people or third parties so that that we don't have abuses of power which I think just happened
0: right right and, and very interesting because in my case I think oh, I got nothing to hide if they want to creep on my cell phone and <laughs> computer, I don't really care. But I get that that's a completely different lens of what else comes with that spying on political opponents, rigging the political system. There's so much to that. And I, I swear we could do an entire episode of somebody on here, which maybe I'll do on campaign financing and how corrupt it can be right, for people right. to win political races. Um, I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint, I know back when I was in the government and you as well, Al Qaeda was the flavor of the week. And, you know, by the time I left, it almost felt like my master's degree and all of that was completely irrelevant because then ISIS comes around and I swear, you know, it's like Al Qaeda's afraid of ISIS. So I'm curious, what is trending? What do you think we're going to see more of? And what can we educate ourselves on? So just to be aware of the pulse of what's going on in political world affairs.
1: Yeah, look, it's a complex world, right? I, I think, you know, one of the key points, if if you were going to ask me for for your, your somewhat younger audience than me, maybe predominantly female audience, I would say one of the key points in life and anything is you got to read. You got to read, whether that's a website, a blog site, an old-fashioned newspaper, a magazine, or books. You got to read to keep up on what's going on in the world, to keep up on what's going on in your industry, to be up to date on the latest changes. Knowledge is a very powerful thing, you know. So, the the, the impact of reading and then listening. It's going to keep you so informed of what's going on in the world on whatever subject or issue you pick, right? Mm -hmm. Winston Churchill, if you really study Winston Churchill, what made him a great leader was the fact that he knew history so well. And he knew that everything that happens in the modern day has happened before. So if you know how it happened before and the mistakes and the successes from the time this thing happened before, you could apply those to your real-world real, real world problem. Whether that's a corporate process that was used in the past, some new sales campaign, how you're promoting yourself, it's all happened before. If you can learn from the mistakes and successes of that, you could be a lot more successful in, in your process. In your personal and corporate life. What I worry about for the future is some really smart person or group using technology to their advantage, shutting down our... You know, uh, computer infrastructure shutting down a power plant, uh, somehow causing some uh, manufacturing process to add a component to cereals that it poisons people. You know, I don't want to get into too many details. Yeah. That's what I worry about: is 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 a very smart group actually using our own technology against us, yeah. which is kind of where ISIS is trending towards already. Right? They're already using drones. They've weaponized drones. Mm-hmm. That's what's coming next in our country, if you want me to point out a specific threat. Not that it's a strategic threat, but there, someone's going to use a drone in an attack. It's already happened overseas. Right. And, and so what else could they put on that drone? The drones are getting bigger. They can carry more things. We've got agricultural drones that spray crops now. Yep. Uh, that's combining technology with that extreme ideology and hatred of the West That's not a good formula. These guys are now tech savvy Mm. and they have the radical ideology and they have the hatred of the West. They've already shown that they would like to kill large amounts of people. That is not a good combination. Now, it's hard to put all those things together. But if they ever do, like they did on 9-11, then we're in for another serious shock, unfortunately.
0: Mm. So I would love if you do you have any book recommendations for people to um, learn or blogs or places that you suggest that they read, so that people can start to weave political awareness into their lives.
1: Yeah, I would I would recommend anything. Uh, he's written several novels, but they're all right on the mark about the real world. If you want to know about intelligence work and in Iran and the real world of counterterrorism, anything by the author, author David Ignatius, I G N A T I U S. He's also a writer, I think, for the Washington Times. He's outstanding. Um, anything put out by the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point they have a website is outstanding Uh, I I log on to a website I subscribe to a website called intelcenter.org they're outstanding on, on extremist stuff Uh, But you got to be really careful, as you know, what you look at on the Internet and any biases associated with it. Those are those are a few things. And, And just read some books out there that are of interest to you. Go to a bookstore. I know it's a dying breed or go online and download your Kindle or your reader read books that might interest you. They're gonna inform you about what's going on in the world and tell you some fascinating stories and also give you, quite frankly, inspiration for your own life. Mm-hmm. I always find inspiration. There's a great book, and I can't remember the title, I apologize, about a group of Norwegians who during World War II, Ashley, basically cross-country skied in winter in Norway for three months to get come up behind this heavy water plant in Norway that the Germans were using to produce heavy water to fuel their atom bomb research. And they sabotaged the plant. They got past all the patrols. But they spent three months out in the open in a Norwegian winter to do this. And you Think about how they, the, the, that little cell of guys changed history. Because the, the Germans couldn't produce heavy water, they couldn't proceed with their atom bomb design. Now, that's an extreme example, right? But you can learn, you can get into inspiration, and motivation for your own personal current life, which is, I know what you're all about, from stories like that. And that all comes from reading. Mm. That all comes from expanding your universe and traveling, like you already do, right? right? Then the more you travel and see other parts, not only of this country, but of the world, the more you have a sense of your place in this life and it'll add to your perspective.
0: So good. And I think like also just educating yourselves on classes you can take in your area. There's so many affordable classes for in my case at UCLA Extension where I can pay basically nothing to learn a foreign language, and so many fun things that help me just stay more connected to the world and out of my own little jar here in Los Angeles or in Paris where I'm living. Um, Bob, this has been awesome. I'm so curious where people can find you, connect with you, all of the things.
1: Yeah, look, I, I make this you know offer to your to your listeners. If I can ever help any of you professionally or privately, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm going to give you my email address. Please don't abuse it. Uh, but if you would <laughs> like to if I can help any of your listeners in any way, it's robert at tartarstel dot com that's robert at t a r t a r u s i n t e l dot com and i'll send a cia challenge coin to the first person who contacts me and tells me the significance of the name tartarus in that name so i'll leave it at that
0: how fun thank you so much bob for being here this was really really awesome
1: thanks ashley for having me i appreciate it